Good morning. Good to see you all and spend this time on Sunday morning with you and fellowshipping with you. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. And uh, it's uh, such a privilege to be outside and to worship with you all and hope you guys are enjoying this outside weather and it's nice, cool, nice and cool under the shade. So, um, oh my, it's not on. Now I'm on. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's nice and cool, I was saying, for those of you who are watching, it's nice and cool under the shade, so I'm enjoying this moment with you all. And uh, so would you turn with me in this part of a worship to the Word of God? If you open up the Word of God with me to the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in Matthew chapter 9. And we have been in this series in Matthew chapter 9, our Sunday morning, studying through the life of Jesus It's been a very, very impressive journey as we've been studying through the life of Jesus, as we see him healing, teaching, and proclaiming the word of God. And we're going to really come to the end of his Galilean ministry or his personal Galilean ministry here as we're approaching this last portion of chapter 9. So if you will turn with me to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to read this passage here from verse 35 to verse 38. Verse 35 to verse 38. Let's read this together. And when Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send our laborers into his harvest. Let's bow in the word of prayer. Our Father, we come to you now, Lord, reading your word, and we know, Lord, your word has much to instruct us and teach us. So, Lord, guide us and teach us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you um, demonstrate who you are, Lord, in our hearts? You make us awesome in our hearts so that we would be willing and have this desire and have this passion to tell people about you as we are reading here in this passage. Lord, give us a heart, give us a love, Lord, for our Lord Jesus Christ to tell people about you. We thank you, God, for this instruction we're about to receive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this world, we can be busy about many things, but we, not, we may not always be busy about the right things in life. I know this because I used to work in a secular field. I was an aerospace engineer working for an aerospace company. Um, it's called Raytheon. I used to uh, do these analysis reports for them. It's called failure analysis reports. And basically what we do is that we inspect parts that fail in, in space or, or not necessarily in space, but when in the field and, or in uh, uh, missiles and guidance system, which this this uh, company makes for the U.S. government. So we analyzed these parts for failures, and there's quite a bit of failures like small failures that happen in the field and they bring these parts to our lab and we analyze them, we make reports about them so that the government can take this information and to develop whatever they want to develop the next stage and, or to make corrections to, for these parts and so that they could be better used in the field. This, these kind of reports are quite oftentimes very complicated to write and they're complicated to, uh, to analyze or these parts are complicated to analyze because these parts are quite uh, complex in their nature. And as I was analyzing them and trying to understand what is going on, I would find myself oftentimes having to do two or three projects at a time. 
Now, because failures happen all the time, and they come in, into the lab, and they, they bring these parts to us, and we have to analyze them, we have to make sense of them, we have to report back to them what we think went wrong. Oftentimes, what will happen is that these parts will keep coming in, and I won't have time to analyze them all. Um, I have three parts sitting on my desk, I'm doing three congruent reports, another part comes in, and, the, and, and they're wondering, where is the result? I'm wondering, like, hey, like I can't produce these results for you. I just got this last week. Can you wait till next week? I'll get these results to you. I say, no, you can't wait. So-and-so is waiting for it. So-and-so government official is waiting for it. So they need the results right now so they can understand what are the next steps they needed to take. I say, I can't give it to you. Like, I'm too busy. What ends up happening is they get, they, they get mad. They get upset at me, and they go talk to my boss or my boss's boss or my boss's boss's boss. And it go, goes all the way down the chain again. comes back to me, and my boss comes to talk to me and says, hey, can, can you please just work during the nights? Can you please just work on the weekends? Can you please work longer? We'll pay you. I say to them, no. I will not work anymore. I got family. I got church. I'm going to be involved in these things. I cannot just simply give my life away to analyze these, analyze these parts and write reports for you. I cannot do that. So over time, they stopped asking. They, they knew that I wasn't going to do it. I told them I have a more important work to do. I have work at church. I, work, uh, I have family time I need to spend with my family. So they stop asking to go ask someone else. So I see people actually go and dedicate their life to this kind of work. People who would dedicate nights, weekends. Some people work 40 hours, uh, 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 not for 40 days straight without stopping. I mean, they just work every day, 12 hours a day without stopping. As a result, their health suffers. The family suffers. They don't spend time with their wives. They don't spend time with their kids. They drift apart from their family. I see that happen all the time. And I wonder, is this really worthwhile for them to make such a decision? Is this a worthwhile decision to make for their lives? Is it worthwhile to sacrifice your family, sacrifice your kids on the altar for the sake of some kind of report that eventually nobody is going to know about a few years from now? I mean, after they got the report, after they know what to do next, they don't really care about you anymore. That's really what the nature of the work is all about. Is it worthwhile, I ask myself. And to the end, the answer is I, I simply did not believe it was worthwhile, at least for me. You know, Jesus also told us one thing that's only one thing in this world, only one thing in this world that's worthwhile for us. That is leading other people to know God. You know why? The only thing that is worthwhile for us on earth is to lead another person to know God. In this world, we can busy, busy ourselves with many things. But there's only one reality that's going to last for all eternity. That reality is that we're going to be either in heaven or in hell. That's one reality. The only reality that's going to happen in eternity. You see, when God created us, He created us to be perfect. He created us to be holy and just. But we walked away from Him. We sinned against Him. And therefore, God, who is holy and just, He must one day restore this earth to the proper order. He must restore this earth to His holiness, to His justice. And by doing so, He must judge sin. He must judge sinners. However, because he loves us and cares for us, he wanted us to be with him. So therefore, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to earth to die on the cross for our sins, to make a way possible for us so that we can be restored back unto the Lord. He gave us salvation. He gave us salvation. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins, to give his perfect righteousness to us. And the only way that this salvation will be made possible for any one of us is that we will believe unto him. And the only way that we will believe is if we have the information to believe. You see, the gospel requires us to proclaim it. The gospel requires for us to tell another person about it. 
The only way that you and I would know the gospel is if someone comes and tells me or you about it. And the only way another person would know the gospel is if you and I would go tell another person about it. That's the only way. And Jesus says this. This is the only and perhaps the most worthwhile work that you would do on earth is to lead another person to know the Lord Jesus Christ because they'll thank you for now and also thank you for eternity. Now they will get to have abundant life with Jesus as they believe. And for eternity, they will be able to have abundant life with him there. So therefore, as we're going to see today here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38, Jesus is going to tell us one important work, the most important work that you and I can do here on earth. And that work is that we would tell other people about him. We would tell other people the gospel. We would tell other people how they can get saved through the Lord Jesus Christ. In this world, as you look around, as you see your own workplace, as you see your own family, you see your own situation, your own life, you're going to see people busy themselves with many things. People are going to busy themselves with many things, but not all things are beneficial. Not all things are going to matter at the end. There's only one thing that's going to matter. That is salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So today, if you and I are willing to share the gospel, willing to tell other people who the Lord Jesus Christ is, and really do so, and lead another person to Jesus, then certainly we will enjoy that abundant life with that individual as that individual is brought to Jesus Christ. Also, that individual will enjoy abundant life with the Lord Jesus and also with the Lord Jesus and also with you in heaven. That is the most important thing that you can do. The most important thing you can do is tell another person about the Lord Jesus and lead that person to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to see here today in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 38, our calling, our calling is to tell another person or as many people as possible in this world about our Lord Jesus Christ. And we have two motivations for doing it here in this passage. Jesus is going to give us two motivations. Or Matthew here in this gospel is going to give us two motivations for why we should tell another person about Jesus. The first motivation is this. We're motivated by the compassion of God. We're motivated by the compassion of God. Let's look here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 to 36. Verse 35, it says this. And Jesus went throughout all cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When we saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Stop right there for a sec. So here, in the ministry of Jesus, he's been telling all that he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's been healing, he's been proclaiming the gospel, he's been teaching all this truth. He's been healing everyone. Anybody who will come to him with sickness and disease, they were healed. And we see this in the nine-month journey. If you don't remember, we've been in this journey specifically in the region of Galilee for nine months since November. When we start, we started this journey in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Where we're going to read a very similar verse to what you just read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 35. Where it says this. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. It says, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. You see this phrase again in what we just read in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 9, verse 35. Why are two phrases here, similar phrases, bracketing this portion of scripture? The reason why it's here is because Matthew, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, nine months ago, is giving us a preview of what is going to tell us what Jesus is doing in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Matthew is giving us a summary of what he just told us. And so in this nine months, we witness exactly what 
This says Jesus has been teaching, he has been proclaiming the word, he's been proclaiming the gospel, and thirdly, he's been healing. It's bracketed throughout all these verses, four chapters, as we have read, as we've studied through. Now, just to give a review, how has been preaching? He's been teaching to all that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He's been teaching specifically by expositing the Word of God. That's how he's been teaching. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says he's been, he's been teaching in their synagogues. Now, if you realize a little bit, if you understand a little bit how the synagogue teaching were happening in the days of Jesus, they basically were teaching expository, uh, expository um, preaching in that style. In the days of Jesus, synagogues were created during the post-exilic period. And the way that it happened is that another preacher, another rabbi will come to the stage and they will explain scripture to the people. Explain scripture to the people. And so Jesus oftentimes was doing this in the synagogues. We see exactly how Jesus was doing this in Matthew chapter 5 when he was exhibiting or expositing what the Word of God says according to the Ten Commandments. He was telling all that what you have learned in the Ten Commandments is, is, is this. He's telling all that if you have read, don't you have read in the Ten Commandments, it says that thou shalt not murder. In the Ten Commandments, it says that thou shalt not steal. In the Ten Commandments, it says that thou shalt not commit adultery. In the Ten Commandments, it says that thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. He's been explaining to all what that really means. Now, the Pharisees have been explaining it all wrong. They, says, they said that if you have not murdered, that means that you have not physically murdered. They said that if you have not committed adultery, that means that you have not physically committed adultery. They said that if you have not taken the Lord's name, Lord's name in vain, that means that you have not physically taken the Lord's name in vain. Jesus says, no, God actually looks at your heart. Even if you got angry, you committed murder in the heart. Even if you had lusted, you committed adultery in your heart. If you have lied, you have taken the Lord's name in vain. He's putting all men under this guilty condition by properly expositing what the Word of God actually says. That he gave the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel here according to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Not only was he teaching, he was proclaiming the gospel. The way he did it is by proclaiming himself to be the solution of the sin problem. You see, we all sin. Our heart generates sin. We cannot escape sin. Sin sticks to us like white on rice. We all are sinners. But Jesus says there's only one person who will never sin in his life. That is who? Himself. He proclaims himself. He said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, He said, do not, do not think that I have come to, what? Destroy the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to, what? Fulfill it. I have come to fulfill the law. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, He said, this is a requirement for salvation. You must be what? Perfect. You must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. The only way that you're going to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect is if you have received the Lord Jesus Christ into your life. Jesus fulfilled that perfect righteousness for you according to the law. The only way that you can be perfect, the only way that you can fulfill that particular requirement, that requirement for you to be in the presence of God is if you receive the Lord Jesus Christ, receive His righteousness unto yourself. So that is the gospel. Thirdly, He was healing. He was healing all diseases, all afflictions, all afflictions to prove the fact that He was God. We saw His healing. He was healing the leper. He was healing the centurion's servant. He was healing the woman with the blood loss. He was healing Jairus' daughter. He was healing the paralytic. He was healing all. He had power over the physical. 
He also had power over the natural. We saw the fact that he can only speak a word. He just speaks a word and the whole storm just calms down. Even the molecules of the storm must listen to him. And lastly, we saw that he had power over the supernatural. He commanded demons, 5,000 of them from the two demoniacs, and they had to flee. They had to go. Demons flee at the command of Jesus. He was powerful. By this, he was demonstrating that he was God. He was healing. He was proclaiming the gospel. He was teaching authoritatively, demonstrating that he was God. No one has done what he did. And the crowd was amazed. And you must realize that he was not just doing this one day. He was doing this every day. Every day for a year and a half when he was ministering in Galilee. The way Matthew puts it all together from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, he had this continual um, uh, uh, language. He says that you know he did this, then he did this, and he passed on from there, then he did this. It made it sound like this was all happening, almost like during the same day. But we know from other gospel accounts these things were actually happening, happening during different days, different times in Jesus' life. However, the way Matthew writes thematically, it made it appear that he was doing this like continuously, and he was, he was. All these things were happening on a daily basis. Daily, daily basis was happening every day. The crowd was amazed and had never seen anyone who did anything like this. As a result, the crowd followed. The crowd followed Jesus. They cannot take their eyes off Jesus because no one's ever done what Jesus did. And to this we come to Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. And it says this. Verse 36, when we saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. Now imagine, Matthew is writing thematically, but he's also writing in a continual way, continual tense, in a sense that he's uh, one event happening after, after the other. Imagine this is at the end of Jesus' day, in the particular day of ministry, he walks up the hill, and he just looks down at all the people who are still looking at him, the crowd. The crowd is looking at him, and they're looking at him wondering where to go next, what to do next. He had compassion on them. He had compassion on them. And the compassion, the word compassion, before I tell you exactly what he had compassion about, this particular compassion is actually something that is coming from his bowels, his guts. You see, in the American language, well, in the English language, we have compassion from our heart, right? In the Hebrew language, also in the Greek language, compassion comes from your gut. It's actually a far more accurate description where compassion actually comes from. The reason why that is the case is because whenever you feel very anxious about something, whenever you really care for someone, which part of your body goes first? Your gut, right? You get the runs, you get nausea, you start feeling like puking. When you really, really care for someone, it's your gut that breaks. And really, really care, and if it's like anxiety has bottled in your heart for a very long time, you get what? get ulcers. You get ulcers, right? That your gut is the first place that goes. So this is the language here. The word for compassion is wasplegazomai. It really means uh, something from the gut. It comes from the word spleen, actually. The spleen is in the gut. So Jesus here is feeling it in the gut. Compassion for the crowd. And the compassion is for a particular thing regarding the crowd. We're going to read here in verse 36. He said, Feel compassion for them because they were what? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now imagine, Jesus could have felt compassion for them because of the physical condition. A lot of people would come to Jesus because they need healing for their eyes, healing for their 
condition, their limbs, women with their blood loss. He could be compassionate for them for their physical condition. But we know here from what this verse is saying, he actually felt compassion for them for a particular thing that wasn't even involved regarding the physical condition. But it's what? It was a spiritual condition. They were helpless, unharassed, like what? Like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Meaning that they don't know where their life is going. They don't have any direction for their life. They don't know how to achieve or obtain salvation. They don't have a shepherd over them. They were lost. Now imagine, sheep is not a very good animal in terms of having its ability to survive on its own. A sheep cannot survive on its own. It's not like a raccoon or a possum, which we see in our city that digs through garbage. Okay, a sheep is not a forager. It cannot survive on its own. It needs a shepherd to tell where it needs to go. So therefore, you read in Psalm chapter 23, I want to read a particular verse to you. In Psalm chapter 23, verse 1, it says this, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. What does the Lord do? He makes me lie down green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. So sheep needs a shepherd to lead. That's what this crowd, this, these, this crowd of people needs. But they didn't have any shepherd. The shepherd is who? They didn't have a true shepherd. They had the Pharisees and the scribes as their shepherd. And they're not leading them in the right direction. That's why Jesus has such a compassion on the crowd. What the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching the crowd was that, hey, you can reach salvation, you can obtain salvation by works. Then they set themselves up as those who have salvation by works. They elevated themselves in that religious hierarchy. Now, we don't live in a religious hierarchy, so we might not really understand. But if you're more religious in those days, the more religious you are, the more you have power over the people. In that religious hierarchy, if you are higher on top, you oftentimes that status, that position can translate to financial gain. You get exact religious taxes upon people and take advantage of that. So you become rich. So taking advantage of the people, they're harassing, abusing people in their spiritual authority. Next, they were harassing, abusing people by causing people to feel despair and tell people, hey, you must work your way. Be like me. But the people would never be like them. They would never be like them. They're harassing people. They're abusing people. As a result, people feeling despair, the fact that, no, I'll never be like them. I'll never achieve salvation. They're feeling this despair in their heart, especially those who are tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and thieves, the people who Jesus hanging out with. They were feeling despair. So Jesus saw the despair, saw the helplessness of the crowd. He spoke to them. He said, come unto me. Come unto me and receive salvation. He had compassion in his heart from his gut. He wanted so badly that these people would just believe unto him. His heart hurt for the people. He wanted them to know that salvation is only a decision and way. Once you make the belief unto the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to suffer under this religious system anymore. You don't have to believe the Pharisees and the scribes anymore. You don't have to believe their lies anymore. You could be free from that. He had compassion for them. This particular compassion come from his gut, come from his feeling. He had a, had a, had a, and how we even say up to uh, this such an anxiety or compassion for the souls of people. Now you and I must learn what that compassion is because that's, this is the compassion that draws us to preach the gospel to the lost. It's not a pretend compassion. 
It's an actual feeling that you must feel for those people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to share, you one, share with you one illustration to kind of help you understand how, uh, what this compassion looks like. In the Old Testament, there was two women that came before King Solomon. And they had a particular argument before King Solomon. You see, these two women were arguing over a baby, a particular baby. One woman slept over her baby, laid on her baby, and killed the baby in the middle of the night. And what she did is that she took another woman's baby and laid it next to her and put a dead baby next to the other woman. So now when they woke up, they know whose baby is whose. So it came before King Solomon and had an argument saying, this baby is mine. Now, there's no way you can tell because it's just the baby. King Solomon had an idea. He was a wise king. He says, this is easy. I'll just do this. Hey, bring a sword. Cut the baby into two. Give one to this woman and give one half to the other woman. It's a good decision, right? What happened? In 1 Kings 3, verse 23, it said the right mother, the, 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 the real mother, had such a compassion in her heart. Her heart earned. Literally what it meant was that her heart, her, her, it said heart in our English translation, but it was her bowels. It was her womb that was violently, turn, violently turning inside of her. It was, was such, such turmoil felt in her bowels. She said to King Solomon, No, let the other woman have the baby. Let the other woman have the baby. Let the baby live. The other baby, or the other woman, didn't care at all. She just said, no, do whatever you want to do. I don't care. But the real mother cared. The real mother had compassion in her heart. See, such is the compassion of Jesus Christ. It was a feeling from the gut. He had compassion for the lost. You see, for Jesus, he was just a cold-hearted preacher. He wasn't a cold-hearted hyper-Calvinist to say, you know what, I'll just preach the gospel. Whoever comes, they will come. Whoever doesn't come, I don't care. No, I believe that every single soul that rejected Jesus, it hurt him. I believe that it really did hurt him. He believed that he actually had the heart that everybody he shared the gospel would believe on him, but people wouldn't believe. People rejected him. He actually hurt him in his very being. He felt it. He had compassion for the lost. We can also see this when he wept. Two, uh, two words, the, the, the shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. When, when did that happen? It happened when Lazarus died. He stood in front of his grave and he wept. He knew that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why did he weep? We think, you know what? I wouldn't have wept. But Jesus wept. He wept because he had compassion in his heart. He had compassion for Lazarus that he had to go through this particular moment of death because of sin. Sin is what brings forth death. He didn't want this world to be the way it was. He wanted people to be restored back to God. He wanted this world to be back the way that God had created in the beginning. He did. So therefore, his heart felt for the people. But not only did he feel, he actually did something about it. He did something about it. He went to the cross and died on the cross to pay for the penalty of our sins and the penalty of your sins and, the penalty, and also gave his perfect righteousness to us. In doing so, he made a solution for us. See, in this world, we're still going to endure a little bit of this residual effects of sin. Each one of us will all have to die or if the Lord tarries, if he comes, praise the Lord. We don't have to do that. But if he tarries, we're all going to have to die. We're going to have to feel the residual effects of sin. But the solution is offered. We're going to be forever with the Lord. Once we pass on from death to life, like our dear member Rodney did this past week, we get to be with the Lord forever. Solutions provided. 
we have eternal life. So in this, he is compassionate toward us. He's compassionate toward us in giving us a solution, giving us the gospel so that we believe unto him, receive eternal life, both here and now and forever. As a result of that compassion, our heart should also be compassionate toward others, which is our next point. As a result of the compassion of Jesus Christ to this world in sharing the gospel about himself, our heart should also be compassionate and share the gospel with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to see here in the next point, in the next portion of our passage as well. Our heart must be compassionate for lost souls. Let's read here from verse 37 to verse 38. Verse 37 says this, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I stop right there. So here, what we're going to read, what we're going to see is that Jesus is telling us that laborers must be needed for his harvest. Now as Jesus looks out to the crowd, he's seeing many people. And we saw this last week. We saw that not everybody who comes to Jesus receives salvation, right? You have the crowd who's marveling, where the crowd who's fascinated with Jesus, and yet the work must be done with the individuals. And then the crowd, there are also Pharisees who don't believe in Jesus. So throughout the gospel accounts, throughout this five chapters we've just read, these nine months, we saw point by point, event by event, Jesus' ministry. His ministry wasn't just proclaim the gospel to the crowd. He didn't have a microphone. I mean, he, he did do so. But we realized that as he stepped off that mountain, his ministry was with the individuals, with the people. He cared for individual conditions. He spoke to individuals. He understood individual stories. He cared for every single person. That's his ministry. So therefore, when Jesus says there are few laborers, but the harvest is plentiful. He's explaining exactly this same phenomenon. If you were just simply preaching to the crowd, then there are no shortage of laborers. I mean, he just speak to the crowd, and everybody hears, listens, and everybody believes, and that is all that there is needed to do. But the reason why the laborers are few is because Jesus understood what is the actual work that needed to be done. Personal invitations needed to be made with every single individual as he encounters them. Personal individuals, invitations, you need to be by that individual who's hurting, who's down and out, to talk to that person, to understand that person's story. And we know what Jesus did in those days. He was actually ministering throughout all Galilee, right? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, he was going from villages to cities, ministering. So what was happening in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 9 was a typical day of Jesus, but he was doing this every single day, ministering to individuals. This is why the laborers are few. According to Josephus, a historian in the day of Jesus, he said that there are 204 villages in the region of Galilee and about 3 million people who are living in that region. Now even in a year and a half ministry that Jesus had in the region of Galilee, he simply cannot minister to every single one of them individually. For that reason, the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful in the sense that many more invitations must be made to individuals. You must look at that person in the eye and say, will you believe? Do you have faith that I can do this? That's what Jesus is asking. Do you have faith that I can do this? Do you have faith in Jesus Christ? And every person must be approached. For that reason, the laborers are few. 
You and I must be the laborers. But before that happens, Jesus says this is the solution. In verse 38, it says this. He says, pray. Pray for the Lord of harvest that he will send out laborers to the harvest. Now that's a puzzling solution to us. Why pray? Why pray? Why not just say, go? Right? Say disciples, go. Everybody go. It's a shortage, go. No. But Jesus says, pray. I believe the reason why Jesus said pray is because prayer will cause our hearts to what? To break. Right? Jesus didn't want to just send you out. He didn't want to just go like, go, because it's important to go, go, because it's an important task. You must go, because I tell you, you go. No. Jesus actually wants your heart to break for the people. And if you pray for the people, you pray for your family, you pray for your mom, pray for your dad, you pray for the family members that don't know Jesus, as you're praying for them, your heart will begin to break for them. You are going to become compassionate for them. You pray for the people in Hollywood, people we see on the street, the tours, the people who are down out, the people who live on sunset in the back. You start praying for them every day, your heart is going to break. Jesus wants you to feel the same compassion that he feels, so he asks you to what? Pray. Pray. And as you pray, what's going to happen? You're going to have compassion in your heart. Yes, that's going to happen within you, but God's also going to what? Answer your prayers. He's going to send laborers in the harvest. I pray for people in such a way. The people who preach the gospel, I preach the gospel to many times who don't want to hear from me anymore. I pray. I pray God will send other laborers to talk to him or her. I pray for that. So God does. God send more laborers in the harvest. But another thing that God does is that as you pray, your compassion grows, right? You're wondering, you know what? Maybe God's sending me. Maybe God is sending me. I will go. So God actually answers prayers by sending other laborers, including you. And you know what the word send means here? The word send in the Greek actually is the word ekbalo. It literally means to throw. To throw. To cast out real hard. To cast a stone far away. That's what word send means. You know what that really is? It's disturbance. When you throw something at some, someone, you're disturbing that person. That's what sharing the gospel is all about. You're disturbing the status quo. Right? A lot of times we don't want to share the gospel because we don't want disturbance to our lives. We don't want our lives disturbed. We don't want other people's lives disturbed. We just want to kind of keep to ourselves in our four walls and not feel anything for anyone. But the reason why we don't disturb anyone is because we don't have compassion in our hearts. We kind of live in the status quo, live in this bubble, which we don't care anymore. But if you do care, you would disturb. You would disturb another person. A holy disturbance so that this person can, can come to know the Lord. That's what disturbance is all about. That's what casting this, that's what sending out people is all about. I'll share you one example of a person who didn't want to disturb. He's in the Old Testament. His name is who? Jonah. Jonah didn't want to make any disturbance at all. In fact, he loved, loved just preaching to the Jews, the people of his, people already really like him. So he didn't want to preach the gospel. So God said one day, Jonah, I want you to preach the gospel to a people group outside of the Jews. Who are they? The Ninevites. Now Jonah didn't like the Ninevites. He hated them. Ninevites were horrible people to the Jews. He didn't want to preach the gospel to them. He didn't want to go out to them. He didn't want himself to be bothered by their lives. He didn't want them to know the Lord. He just didn't want to do any of that. So he ran away. He ran away. As he ran away, 
God called up to him, had the fish swallow him. You know, if you know that story, he was spit back out to the land. He had to go back, preach the gospel, so he did. But the key of the story actually is in chapter 4. Many of you don't know that story. After he preached the gospel in Nineveh, he went up the hill, he sat under a plant, a big plant, perhaps even a tree. And this particular plant was providing shade to Jonah. He was very, very thankful for the plant. But then God had come at that day and made the plant die. The plant died and withered away. And Jonah's head was exposed to the sun. He began to become really, really upset at God, saying, God, why did you have this plant die? And God answered him. This is the last verse of Jonah chapter 4. You care for this plant, but you don't care about the 120,000 people that would have perished in hell if they don't know me. You care for this plant, but you don't care for 120,000 people. And oftentimes I wonder if we're the same way. We are. I'm the same way. I care about my, what, career? I care about my ambitions. I care about my house, my furniture, my plants, my pets. I do. I'm confessing to you this week. Uh, my dad and I were thinking about how do we uh, protect our grapes from eating by squirrels. Spending a lot of efforts doing that. We're compassionate for our grapes. We feel nothing for hundreds and thousands of people in Hollywood that would perish with our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you the same way as me? I think we are. But the Lord is different. Our Lord actually cared. He cared for the right things in life. He labored for the gospel. He labored to present himself as a solution to man's problem of sin. He made sacrifices. He cared so much he stepped out. That is why he came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. He lived a perfect life for us. Did you know that he didn't have to live a perfect life on earth? He already lived a perfect life in heaven. He was already perfectly righteous for all eternity to pass to all eternity future. The only reason why he came to earth to live a perfect life is for you and for me because he had to represent man before God. That's the only reason why he came to earth to live a perfect life. He's already perfect. And then he died on the cross. When he died on the cross, he was counted as a sinner before God because he was carrying our sins. On that cross for six hours, he was separated from the Father. See, for all eternity past, to all eternity future, Jesus Christ was forever intimate with the Father except for that six hours on the cross in which he was separated. He suffered. He didn't want to do it. It brought him great, great pain. He didn't want to do it in the garden. He was sweating blood. Yeah, he did it. Because why? Because he loved us. He was compassionate toward us. He cared for us. So out of that, we ought also, ought to also care for another person. Other people who don't know our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to make the sacrifices to see another person come to know the Lord Jesus. That means go out there and tell another person about our Lord Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel. Tell them that they can be only saved through believing unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is urgent. This is urgent. The only reason why it's urgent is because this decision must be made while they're still here on earth. Once you die, you cannot make this decision anymore. You cannot claim the Lord once you die. Once you die, it's over. You can only make the decision to follow the Lord Jesus Christ while you're here on earth. Every day, hundreds of thousands of people die. I think I read a particular account saying 53 million people die on earth. Every day. 
Many of them going to hell without the Lord Jesus. Think about that. That should cause your heart to break. It should cause your heart to break. It should bring urgency to your heart that you would share the gospel with people in your life, your coworkers, your friends, people you don't know, people on the streets. In fact, this particular compassion would drive you to minister to people who you don't know, as Jesus did. If our ministry here on earth, if our ministry here as a church is only within the four walls of our church, it's too narrow. It's way too narrow. It's not the model of Jesus' ministry on earth. You only come to church and minister at church. Your ministry is way too narrow. It has to be in the crowd. And Jesus was in the crowd. Jesus was rubbing shoulders with the crowd all day long. He was. Rubbing shoulders with them, talking to them. He's always with the crowd. You know who the crowd is for us? It's everybody in Hollywood. It's the people walking up and down the streets. It's the people who are down and out on the streets. It's people who live behind us. It's people who live in the nice houses. It's everybody. It's the crowd. Our ministry must extend to beyond the four walls. That's what the Lord commands. And as we do so, it's going to take sacrifice for us, right? It's going to take sacrifice because administering strangers is never easy. You don't know where this person is from. You don't know if he's going to take advantage of you. I'm sure Jesus was taking advantage of plenty of times building relationship with them, ministering to their needs. It's going to require time for time, money, effort. But if you cared, if you had compassion in your heart, you would do so. You would do so. You would do it at all cost to see people come to know the Lord. It may not be a lot, but those is going to be worth your while. You see the ministry of Jesus Christ who is ministering to the crowd. But then he cared for individuals. He cared for the leper. He cared for the centurion's servant. He cared for the woman with the blood loss. He cared for the Jairus' daughter. He cared for every single one individual. And so your heart, even as you minister to the crowd, but your heart is always pouring out for individuals. Is this person going to come to know the Lord? If he is, I want to be there. I want to be ministering to that person to see this person come to know the Lord. That is your heart. Your heart is for individuals. It's not about the results. It's not about like, hey, maybe the Lord will bring a revival one day. I don't know. A revival might just be thousands of people will come. It happened in history, but I don't bank on that. I don't. It could happen. Variety of times in history, one or two, I mean, you could count how many times it happened in history. Hundreds of years happens once or twice. It could happen today. But most of the time is what? It's the grind. And I think Jesus is going through the grind. And he left the revival to Peter and Paul. And Peter preached once, 3,000 people get saved. And Jesus is preaching, you have these same stories, individual stories. He was in the grind like you and I. I believe the grind is what motivates us. I mean, with the fact that Jesus actually went through the grind means that we can also go through the grind ourselves as we do so. If we are here, if I'm here for the next 30 years, and I pray, I pray that we'll be here, that you'll stand with me for the next 20, 30 years, however the Lord had me, till the Lord tarries, till the Lord comes, or the Lord, or the Lord takes you home, however the Lord will have you, Next 20, 30 years, if 10 people get saved, 20 people get saved each year, that still means a lot of people, right? This place will be filled with changed lives. And changed lives bring more changed lives here in our city. This impact will ripple through, not just in Hollywood, but beyond Hollywood in this world. And I pray that we get to see it after three decades. But even before that, maybe we get to see it. You know, maybe we get to see it if the Lord, if the Lord wills. So with that, that is our motivation. Our motivation is that we would 
know the love of God. We know the love of God, know how compassionate the Lord is. And by that, share the gospel. The second motivation is this. We've been motivated by our own compassion for the people that we encounter. I tell you the third motivation. Another motivation is because we know who is the Lord of the harvest. Another motivation is that we would know that we also know who is the Lord of the harvest. Drawing this conclusion to the sermon, but as you and I are here, I'm thankful that we get to meet with you outside. And this whole reason why we're meeting outside is because of the virus. And many churches today are shutting down. They're just not meeting at all because of it. And many ministries are shutting down too. And people are wondering, maybe this is the time that we take a break. Maybe this is the time that we take a break from actual ministry. But I tell you this, the Lord of Harvest never told you to take a break. The government told you to take a break. The CDC tells you to take a break. The governor tells you to take a break. Maybe the virus tells you to take a break. Maybe Satan is trying to tell you to take a break. But the Lord of Harvest haven't. He hasn't told you to take a break. He tells you to go. Go. And you know what the shortage is? The shortage has never been a place to meet. The shortage has never been the money. The shortage has never been the opportunity. The shortage is what? The laborers. Always have been the laborers. So today you can go and I can go and share the gospel with people in ways that you know that it's safe for you. But I may be picking up the phone call. That may be calling someone. That may be talking to another person you haven't talked to. That may be in your own ways, reaching out to your neighbor, your coworkers, your family, your friends, continue to share the gospel. The harvest is still plentiful. You must go because the laborers are few. And as we go, I know the God of the harvest will provide the harvest for us. Many people will come to know the Lord and that day will rejoice with those people when they'll also receive into heaven to live forever with the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you, God. We thank you for this message which I needed to hear. I need to know this because oftentimes I could stick in my own bubble. But God, when we have such a heart of compassion that breaks for the lost souls in our city, when we know, Lord, that these people are going to go and be in hell forever without you, I mean, in fact, they're probably living in hell right now without you. Lord, they need the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we need you, may we proclaim this good news to all the people of our city that need you. May we give courage to us that today may we be thinking about all the people, Lord, even just people who are our coworkers, our friends, our family members who need the Lord Jesus Christ. May we pick up that phone. May we call someone. May we tell them about you. May we reach out, God. May we obey the commandment of the Lord of the harvest so that many people may come to know you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.